this is David Beeson. Welcome to Chapter 52 of A History of England, the first of two episodes with the overall title, Two Young Men Unleashed. This one is subtitled, James. If you're familiar with the expression, the jewel in the crown, you probably know it's generally associated with India. But to get into the mindset of the 18th century, you have to think that it wasn't initially India, but North America, that was the most precious gem in the British imperial crown. A major factor was the bond of kinship between England and its American territories. In India, the existing societies may have proved no match for the political and economic guile or the military power of the Europeans, but the population was far too sophisticated, well-organised and numerous simply to allow them to take over. Brits could dominate, but they couldn't replace Indians. In North America, on the other hand, indigenous peoples were too poorly organised and too few to put up significant long-term resistance. In India, there was no way any part of the country could be turned into a New England. In the American colonies, on the other hand, Englishmen were creating an extension of England with the same customs, the same legal traditions, the same faiths, the same language. The rulers were of the same race and, as well as the Africans they brought in as slaves, they made sure they fully dominated the native people who remained, keeping them corralled until they were wiped out or driven away by later generations of whites in one of the great acts of ethnic cleansing of world history. The American colonists were our people. Having our people on another continent mattered. That made it important to defend our position there. In our previous episode, we saw William Pitt the Elder becoming, in effect, British Prime Minister. He was a man who felt the bond with Britain's American subjects deeply and saw the future as one of partnership between them and the mother country. As he prepared to lead Britain in a worldwide war, concerns over America would have been high on his list of priorities. You'll remember that Pitt didn't much like the idea of large standing armies. He saw them as a threat to civil liberties and a waste of manpower that could be used more profitably in other work. In any case, he thought British soldiers far too expensive to maintain. He preferred to pay other people to do the fighting for him. To be fair, Britain did have some troops fighting on the European continent alongside the forces of Hanover ruled by the British king as the elector. However, Pitt's main effort in Europe was financial, with subsidies to the Prussians running at £200,000 a year, £40 million in today's terms, which may not sound like much, but with weapons costing so much less back then, you got a lot more military advantage for your buck than you would do now. For the North American War, Pitt came up with £5.5 million and then another million pounds in its naval support. He then provided a further million in direct payments to the colonies to cover their costs in wages and equipment for the forces they raised. It may not surprise you to learn that those direct payments to the colonies were received with enthusiasm, and the colonies proved more eager than ever to cooperate with the mother country. The colony of Massachusetts, for instance, immediately voted to raise 7,000 men to join the war. Spending money on them makes you friends. The trouble was that in North America, Pitt had no convenient Prussians to call on. He had to find another way to take on the French using British resources. It had to be a completely different way if he was ever to beat them. 
Experience with Brits as commanders, either from the colonies themselves, George Washington, or protégés of the Duke of Cumberland sent out from Britain, like Edward Braddock or the Earl of Loudoun, had been deeply disappointing. The French just kept thrashing them. England, and indeed Scotland, Loudoun was Scots, have a long tradition of producing appallingly bad generals who waste their men's lives as well as the money invested in them, only to be held or beaten by their enemies. Pitt decided he'd had enough of that brand. He felt Britain deserved better. Loudoun, the latest washout in America, was recalled in disgrace. And it wasn't just the man who went. Some British attitudes accompanied him, such as the view that colonial soldiers should be seen and treated as inherently inferior to those from the home country. Various delightful British military practices also went with Loudoun, such as the use of the lash for discipline. Men might be subjected to hundreds of whip strokes, as many as 500 or even a 1,000 for the more serious offences. That was torture, in many cases, to death. That kind of practice was alien to the colonial population, who was shocked to see it used in the army. Next, Pitt started to look for some generals who were significantly younger, more dynamic, and, above all, likely to be better soldiers than the lamentable crop before them. If necessary, he'd promote them over the heads of men who had previously been senior to them. Horror of horrors, right? This was like favouring a British army in which command was based on merit rather than birth, aristocratic connections, or years already served. Can you imagine? It was a dangerous innovation that ran counter to long-standing English traditions and would shake the military service to its foundations. After the failures of the previous decade, the American problem with France was no nearer solution than ever. The French still had an arc of possessions extending from present-day Canada in the north, via the Great Lakes and down the Mississippi to New Orleans, hemming in the British colonists who hankered after westward expansion, at least in time. Britain needed France to abandon that exasperating position, and that was the job Pitt's government took on. One major difference between the British and the French in North America was a matter of numbers. When their decisive clashes took place, the population of New France, Canada, was around 70,000. That's a bit less than the single city of Marseille in old France of the period. In contrast, the British colonies in North America had a population approaching 1.2 million. That's fully a fifth of the population back in Britain itself. It's an entirely different scale of presence from France's. That gave Britain the advantage. If they were properly resourced and well-led, British forces had a depth of strength in the continent that would count against France in the long term. Pitt had ensured that they were, indeed, properly resourced. Now he had to provide the leadership. That he did by reaching down in the ranks of superior officers to pick a man with youth and dynamism on his side as well as real military talent. James Wolfe was from a minor branch of the gentry with distinguished, though not outstanding, ancestors. An uncle, for instance, was a member of Parliament. Wolfe's father had been a lieutenant-general, and from his earliest years, Wolfe was destined for a military career. He entered his father's 1st Marine Regiment at the age of 13. He was lucky enough to be ill and therefore not involved in the disastrous British expedition to Cartagena, 
but he did see action in the War of Austrian Succession and in the campaign of ethnic cleansing in Scotland after the 1745 uprising. He made clear where he stood on the right attitude towards civilians in the Highlands when he wrote to a friend, as few Highlanders are made prisoner as possible. No, you didn't have to be nice to be militarily effective. He proved his military effectiveness again early in the Seven Years' War when he took part in a British raid on the stronghold at Rochefort in mainland France. The raid failed, but Wolfe's performance caught the eye of Pitt, who made him second in command of a new expedition against the French superfortress at Louisbourg in Nova Scotia. You may remember that the men from Massachusetts had once previously captured their fortress, only to see it handed back in return for the East India Company's station at Madras in India at the end of the War of Austrian Succession. Louisbourg fell again to the new expedition, and Wolfe took command of a force sent against the French garrison at Quebec. He made his intentions clear in a manifesto he issued. If, by accident in the river, by the enemy's resistance, by sickness or slaughter in the army, or from any other cause, we find that Quebec is not likely to fall into our hands, persevering, however, to the last moment, I propose to set the town on fire with shells, to destroy the harvest, houses and cattle, both above and below, to send off as many Canadians as possible to Europe, and to leave famine and desolation behind me. We must teach these scoundrels to make war in a more gentlemanlike manner. It's frightening, isn't it, to imagine what form ungentlemanlike war might have taken. He proved an outstanding general, but in war, Wolfe was pitiless. And in this instance, it probably did him harm. His threats of harsh treatment may have encouraged more widespread resistance to the British and driven more men from the local French population to volunteer for the militia supporting their country's cause. After three months unsuccessfully besieging the city in September 1759, when he wasn't yet 33, Wolfe opted for a bold stroke. We've seen that bold strokes often turn badly wrong, for instance for Charles I at Naseby, his last great defeat, but with a good general they can work. He took ships up the St Lawrence River past the city and landed men and cannon on the shore beneath 200 metre high cliffs the French thought unscalable. But an Englishman who'd been captured by the French in earlier fighting, then held in relaxed captivity for a time in Quebec before he escaped, told Wolfe of paths up the cliffs. The men climbed the cliffs, arriving on the plains of Abraham above the city in the morning with their guns. Afraid that the city walls wouldn't stand bombardment on that side, the French general, the Marquis de Montcalm, took his men out of the city and confronted Wolfe on the plains. The fighting lasted just a quarter of an hour, but Wolfe was fatally wounded. As he lay dying on the battlefield, he heard an officer exclaim, See how they run! Who runs? Wolfe demanded to know. The enemy, sir, came the reply. They give way everywhere. God be praised, Wolf announced. I die contented. Wolf was a man driven by the desire for glory. He made no fortune, unlike his opposite number in India, as we shall see. But, as the historian Simon Sharma explains, his aspiration was that his compatriots put up a statue to him in Westminster Abbey in London. You'll doubtless be glad to know that he has one. James Wolfe had been bred to the military. 
He was a dangerous enemy to have, ruthless in his approach to conquest. What made him all the more dangerous was that he was also highly effective in action, recognising an opportunity, knowing how to make the most of it and having the courage to go for it. His victory at Quebec broke the back of French power in North America. The British Empire would never again be threatened by France or any other foreign power on that continent. Unfortunately for the British, though they didn't know it at the time, their worst enemy there wasn't a foreign power but themselves. They had less than two decades left to enjoy possession of their American colonies. For the moment, though, they had every reason to rejoice over the triumph for which Wolfe had given his life. It was the key gain in Pitt's Annus Mirabilis, his year of wonders of 1759. Of course, that wouldn't have been a full year of wonders without other successes to accompany it. In the West Indies, although the British failed to capture the French island of Martinique, they did take Guadeloupe instead. The Royal Navy won important engagements at Lagos off the Portuguese coast and Quiberon Bay in France, the latter battle putting an end to French plans for an invasion of the British Isles and establishing Britain as the world's leading sea power. Remember that Britain had some troops fighting on the European continent? At the Battle of Minden in Germany, commanders of the relatively small British contingent serving under Prussian command with the support of Hanoverian troops misunderstood orders they'd received. They took the command to advance upon the sound of drums, i.e. when the drums sound, as advance to the sound of drums, i.e. with drums beating. These infantry units marched straight at three lines of French cavalry. Received wisdom was that infantry stood not a chance against cavalry. The army around them watched aghast as these soldiers marched to their obvious doom. But the horror turned to astonishment as, against all expectations and precedent, the six British regiments and two Hanoverian battalions, well supported by artillery, broke the French cavalry lines and drove them from the field. By defeating cavalry with infantry, the British commanders at Minden pulled off a trick as spectacular as Wolfe's at Quebec. However, they did it by mistake, whereas he achieved success by brilliantly executing what he'd planned, which, I reckon, leaves him with the edge. So many triumphs, and we haven't even mentioned one of the most important, India. That, though, was the stage on which the other young man was unleashed. That was Robert. We'll meet him next time. Thanks for listening. Yeah.